0: Hello, all, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. Here, as always, with Everald Compton. How are you, Ev?
1: Well, I'm good, mate. I'm good. I, uh, you know, uh, we all have ups and downs in life. Good weeks, bad weeks. But by and large, I think all of us, all of us, have better, more better days than bad days. So I think we're doing all right now. I wanted to get this week to get stuck into first into this. Uh, robo-debt situation. When I say stuck into it, I I, uh, I think that uh, uh, the, the Commissioner Holmes has uh, has done an excellent job in sharing it and getting to the guts of the whole thing. She looked to me like she's a very competent person. Now, all the evidence has gone. Prime Ministers have been hurled before, hauled before the whole thing. She's got to go and write a report. And I speculate to what's in the report, but above all, I'm wanting to know what penalties will happen to the people who started this thing illegally and hurt so many people. There's a lot of the public out there who want some of the MPs, some of the ministers to go to jail, and I wouldn't oppose that in, in, you know, in fact. And so I wanted to debate, is it possible ever to get corrupt politicians or law-breaking politicians, is it ever possible to put them in jail or is the parliamentary
0: system going to protect them? Well, in New South Wales, at least, I'm just talking, I'll take a detour for a second. Um, you can, I believe, go to jail for corrupt conduct, like it's an offence against the ICAC or whatever. Uh, now, ICAC can only find you've done corrupt conduct. ICAC can't send you to jail. But once you've been found to be corrupt by ICAC, you can then be hauled before a court and forced to answer a charge. Now, remembering we didn't really have a federal ICAC uh, until, you know, it's still in the mechanistics of being set up and people will be being appointed to it whatnot. Um, I My first guess of an answer is, unfortunately, because I think these people should be behind bars for the rest of their lives as well for the cruelty they inflicted, um, I think the answer might be no. Now, just for our listeners who may not know what robo that was, Uh, the government used algorithms to um, figure out, they averaged the income of people who were on welfare. Um, So they used an algorithm to, like they got a couple of data points of people's weekly income, used it to average it across a year or a long period, and then took that extended average as a person's income. Now, when they did this, they found that they had apparently... overpaid a bunch of people and so sent debt notices to a lot of people on unemployment and on the pension. Now, the people who were hit by this were like casual workers who might work, say, one day a week, one fortnight, but then for another fortnight might work four days a week. And so their income would be going sort of up and down week by week. And the algorithm couldn't process the idea of people's income being different in different weeks, and that having different consequences for how much um Centrelink they were entitled to, and so you had the most vulnerable people, unemployed people, pensioners, the people with the least money out of anyone, being sent these debt notices saying you know you owe the government two thousand dollars or the debt collectors will come for you, you owe the government uh, eight thousand dollars or the debt collectors will come to you. These weren't small amounts they were being chased with, and these are people who. Um, have never. They didn't do anything wrong. They never entered anything wrong in their um, in their reporting to Centrelink. They never lied to Centrelink. Um, and then, because of these government screw ups, um, were being chased for thousands of dollars by government debt collectors. We had MPs, um, Alan Tudge, especially one of the architects of the robo debt scheme. Robo debt, called so because it was the algorithm creating the debts. Um, Alan Tudge, when he came before the Royal Commission, he basically said at every time it was raised with him that this could be illegal, he either didn't know it was being talked about, apparently, or just chose to ignore it. We had Stuart Robert pretty much told the same thing, that he knew there was probably something wrong, but he still went in to Parliament to defend it anyway, because that's just what you do. We had senior public servants testifying that in spite of the advice that it was illegal, they unquestionably ploughed ahead with sending these debts anyway. So it's not just the MPs who were um, involved and complicit in this. There are are a lot of senior public servants in the Department of Social Services who, even after being told it was illegal, still helped implement and push the scheme unquestionably. so it's it's not just the MPs, um, but it's it's unfortunate that like, you know, whenever we see um politicians do something that results in harm to people, uh, it, it goes unpunished. Like if, if I go down the street and I beat someone up, I'm going to jail. But if a politician sends someone a illegal debt that they can't service and that person goes and kills themselves, which a lot of victims of the robo-debt scheme sadly did, Politician can just wash their hands of it and say, look, now sorry.
1: This is, uh, uh, this is the point, James. It has been proven that ministers and public servants <coughs> acted illegally turned a blind eye to what was going on If they're just censured in the report and the report says you're bad boys and don't do this again, there's going to be public outrage about it all. At the very least, the the, the Stuart, well, Tudge has already left Parliament, but Stuart Roberts should be voted out of the Parliament and told to go. Public servants should lose their jobs who've done what they've done. Now, unless that happens, there's going to be public Outrage now is it possible for the parliament to be, even scott morrison and turnbull who were the boss at the time and as you know if you're the captain of the ship you're responsible for what went on can those blokes be voted out of parliament
0: um i'm i'm not sure they can be voted out of parliament um it's something i have to look up and get back to you um in the next podcast um I can tell you all about the removal of judges, but the removal of parliamentarians is something that I haven't looked into.
1: Um, well, I, think, I think we're at a point in Australian history where there's been too many covered up and smoothing over of political sins. And I think we've reached the point where this one has to show an example to politicians to come, that this is what happens when you get up to this sort of nonsense in the future. If these blokes aren't centred in some way, I'm inclined to go to the parliament with my parliamentary pass and go and arrest them myself and take them out in a headlock down to the local police station. You know, there's got to be something done about this or there's going to be public outrage. And it's a matter that I intend to pursue mightily now. Now it'll take much note of an old bloke like me. But I don't believe that we can have a tut-tut thing, don't you boys do this again. That is
0: unsatisfactory. I, I completely agree. And I mean, you know, it's it's hard to put into words, and I probably haven't done justice to putting into words, how awful and cruel and damaging this robo-debt system was. Uh, I don't know how many listeners in their lives have been on settling or a pension or some other form of welfare, but... Um, if you're on some form of welfare, you probably don't have $8,000 lying around to hand to the government debt collectors when they come knocking. Um, it's like to, that, that people committed suicide over this because they thought, you know, there, there was no better option because they couldn't pay these debts that they never owed in the first place. What we're told by the government that they owe um, is just shocking. And that all the while... The MPs and senior public servants implementing this knew it was illegal, but chose to plough ahead anyway with this program attacking the most vulnerable in the name of sort of cost cutting and saving a bit on a balanced budget. Um, it's just it's a unfathomably dark chapter. The,
1: the whole thing is, uh, you know, I've been around Parliament, as you know, for a long, long time. I've never seen worse actions by ministers and public servants in my life, and this one, we've got to take it right now to to, to, as far as we can, and make sure that justice is done one way or another. But let's let's move on. When, when the report comes out, uh, we we, you know, we can see uh, uh, we can see what happens. But let's talk about now. Made elbow over there in uh, in India. Now, I read in one of the Conservative newspapers this week who accused Albo of going to India solely to go to the Test cricket and be driven round the Oval by, with Modi and everybody clapping. Now, well, if I was the Prime Minister, that's a hell of a good idea to go to the cricket, and go around. But, you know, we'll let the Conservative guys you know, have their day there. The issue is that we appear to be developing a greater security pact for our armed forces between Australia and India. And I regard that as more important than us having submarines from America and Britain, which are two dying nations. Uh, And I'm delighted that we we are strengthening the defence ties with India. And I think uh, that's the crucial thing that comes out of it. Or do you see other things that came out of it all?
0: Uh, I, I find it funny that the conservative papers were slang the elbow for that because Narendra Modi is a right-wing religious totalitarian leader. Um, mm. And, you know, that's that's who those right-wing papers love. That's who they mm. want in power here. So it surprises me that they weren't, um, you know, bending down and kissing his feet. I suppose, yeah, it's um, the, the one thing that really annoys me about this. And this, this started under Morrison, this sort of diplomatic pivot, towards friendship with India is that the reason we're doing this is because we're saying, you know, uh, our, our our intelligence community and our papers, and our media say, Oh, president G is evil. He's a strong man. He's a fascist. He's a dictator. Modi is all of those things too. So I find it very hypocritical that while we say, Oh, you know, China is this big evil country, which they are not. Um, we're happy to turn around and, you know, make nice with this country where the local leaders of Modi's party regularly turn a blind eye to um, religiously motivated massacres of Muslims, which, if we recall, was what our government sort of accused Xi's government of doing in Xinjiang, like abuse of the Muslim population. And they were saying, you know, this is some big evil human rights breach for RRR. And yet, when our new friend India does the same thing, suddenly we don't care. When China still keeps their diplomatic avenues with Russia open, despite what Russia is doing in Ukraine, um, our intelligence community and our media is like, look, China is evil, China must not do this. Um, Yet when India keeps their diplomatic and military ties with Russia open during their invasion of Ukraine, which they are also doing, um, our media and our intelligence community does not care. So while I am all for us doing more diplomacy with all countries, including India, the hypocrisy around the pivot to India vis-a-vis how our media um, treats China, it, it really annoys me, I have to say.
1: Well, well, uh, first of all, there's two things. There's what the media do, and I get less and less enchanted with what the media do you know, day by day. And then, then there's what politicians do. And when you go to a country, you have to, respect the yes, yep. there. And Modi Absolutely. won the elections. Uh, well, I was going to say legitimately, I think <laughs> he had all sorts of things going for him uh, uh, where he used the mechanisms of power. But nevertheless, there was a democratic election and he was elected. So we deal with him. And he is a Hindu fanatic. There's no two ways about that. He wants a Hindu nation uh, without question and, and nothing, else, uh, nothing else going for it. But nevertheless, he's the boss of that. Now, India is a country that at least has, and a young lawyer, you'll be uh, common, operates still by British common law. When they kicked the British out in 1947, common law survived.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you
1: can go to India and sign a contract that looks like a contract in Australia because we're following British common law, When you go to China, they make laws up overnight. That's a different kettle of fish. And we do play cricket against the Indians. And we have fought with Indian troops in in wars side by side. And there's a long tradition. It so happens they've got a a prime minister that I don't particularly like. But nevertheless, they elected him. And there's an election coming up. And the thing that worried me about Albo going around the cricket uh, with Modi wasn't. Well, the, the Aussie cricket team was there and this was in cricket, That's some good... Modi's got an election coming up and we could have said, well, Albo's trying to get him re-elected. I'm sure he wasn't, but you could create that image mm. if, if you wanted to. So there's lots more reasons why we should have something going with India uh, than, than with China. Having said that, you and I have consistently on our podcast <coughs> advocated closer relationships yes. With China, and now Xi is safely in his third term and doesn't have to pander anyone about his third term. I think we might get down to some more concrete negotiations with uh, uh, with him, and and one hopes that 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 might happen.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I should say I have no problem at all um, with us developing closer relations with India, China, or any country. Um, any trade relationship we can build is good. Because it means, you know, the free exchange of goods and services and people, um, both countries end up stronger. So from a human development perspective, it's always great to be doing more trade and to be making nice with a lot more countries. Uh, Just for the benefit of our listeners, I suppose, um, the reason, like you point out, Modi does, in India, there are elections. But Modi's men have, you know, standover guys at ballot boxes and they stop people from voting who they don't want voting and those sorts of things. So it, it's those, there are elections uh, in inverted commas, but they're not exactly what you'd call the free, fair, democratic elections that we have here. Uh, that's that's just signpost to our readers what we're talking about when we say Modi is elected, but also not really democratically uh, man, and elected. Mind you, James, um, in the yeah.
1: southern states of America, mm-hmm.
0: there are governors who fiddle with the ballot
1: boxes when black people try to vote too. I mean, we have this sort of mm-hmm. thing going on all over the world, so oh, yeah. it's a step forward. I think what we've yeah. done to do is, is include Indonesia in our pact. Our Modi might have been a bit of trouble with that because Indonesia is a Muslim nation. But Australia, Indonesia, India are the natural partners of the of the Southern Hemisphere, and maybe uh, that'll go some trouble. Let's let's move over to England and get stuck into Rudi Sunak uh, for a minute and his. Uh, adopting the Australian tactics in stopping people uh, from crossing the channel. And so, uh, uh, and the things that he's doing uh, 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 are quite as, as racist as you can get these other people. Well, if you break the laws, we're going to send you to Rwanda. But their deal with Rwanda is only to take a limited number of people that Rwanda selects. And so the threat of saying hey, we're going to, Send you to Rwanda if you come absolute nonsense. Now, it's a backward step what uh, Stoltenberg's done. But bear in mind, one of the reasons that people voted for Brexit was that if they were out of Europe, they could stop boats coming across the Channel. That that was one of the reasons for Brexit. So we've got a hell of a mess there, haven't
0: we? Oh yeah. Um, what what I saw the other day, I think two days ago, two or three days ago was um, Rishi Sunak's big announcement. If you come to England by boat, you will be denied protection under our modern slavery laws. So Rishi Sunak has said, and this isn't like me distorting it or making it up. If you come to Britain and then you are by some employer over there enslaved or put to work for like $2 an hour. And oftentimes that's what people smuggling companies do. They say, we'll get you to Australia by boat. You have to work as a cleaner or whatever for one of our contacts there for $2 an hour a day, uh, every day. And Sunak says, well, if you come here and then you get enslaved, too bad, sucks to be you, we won't help you. Which is just so sickeningly cruel to, even if it's a group you don't want in your country, to deny people the protection of your country's criminal laws, it makes them a vulnerable class and easy to be exploited. It must be pointed out that asylum seekers who come by boat, it's the most, one of the most dangerous things in the world you can do to get on some dodgy boat provided by someone who is a criminal because the people smuggling rings are international criminals um, and take that boat days across international waters to hopefully wash ashore in a friendly country. Uh people don't do that for fun or for thrills or for leisure. They do it because they are motivated by the highest of fears for their safety in their home country. People don't leave their home country for for a fun time. Um that's their home country. They do it because it is war torn or because they're being religiously persecuted or whatever. Um, And then to deny these people the benefit of protections under your laws, protections that which are often applied specifically to stop the exploitation of recent migrants and asylum seekers is just so, so cruel. I think, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, it's a uh, a bit of a sad situation. Well, let's have a look at, at good and bad, uh, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, for the week. I, I, I'm very, we come back to RoboDead again, and I'm very impressed with, it's Catherine Holmes is the lady's name, isn't it? Who's, uh, mm. Watching her operate, she's got this calm demeanour. She operates very fairly. When she asks tough questions, she asks them nicely, but everyone's in no doubt that she wants an answer. And I think we've got someone who's going to write a very clear and definitive report on RoboJet and what happened in the future. And I'm looking forward to to reading it and seeing what happens. And I'm hoping that she recommends some legal action. I know that she can't put anybody in jail, but she recommends action to happen. But I've been enormously impressed with the calm way that she's run that show. And uh, and uh, I think we're at the very least we're going to get a report that will shake the political establishment to its very foundations, and I think that will be uh, a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's entirely fair. I mean, she is, um, but it. I, I'm the the job of a royal commissioner must be a very lonely one, because you're whisked away from whatever you do in your private life to run these hearings for an extended period of time and then go back and write a enormous thorough report because like you only get the chance to do a Royal commission once. Like if, if you flub the report, that's the chance wasted. So you have to write such a airtight, watertight report. And to be able to do that, um, like the, the the brilliance of the people's minds who can do it, the focus and the, you know, the laser like intensity with which they must be writing, uh, and, carrying themselves. Um, is yeah, it's
1: is a, an impressive performance as I've seen and I'm looking forward to uh, good things happening. Now, who's your good guy of the week, uh,
0: again. Um, Yeah, it, it is rare that um I will ever say um, companies are a good guy of the week, but the, specifically my good guy of the week in light of the fact that it was International Women's Day this week, uh, I just want to give a shout-out to all the companies out there who pay men and women the same. Um, we've talked, we have talked last week about gender pay gaps a bit. We were talking about super and how pay gaps lead um, to women having less super because if you're getting paid less than men, the 11% you get in super is 11% of a smaller number. But there are some businesses and companies out there with no pay gaps I saw Cafe Pacific, the airline was one of them, for an example. Their women actually get paid a little more than men. Um, so to see, um, just to give a shout out to all the all the firms and companies out there who don't have gender pay gaps and do have um, you know, protections and systems in place for stuff like breastfeeding and all those things that women in the workforce sort of fifty years ago were denied. Uh, I think it's just good to Give a little shout-out to those doing the right thing.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I don't like days like Women's Day or any other day. They're symbolic things where everybody talks a lot of nonsense. So I went on Twitter and said I thought that, you know, Women's Day doesn't impress me at all, nor does any other day, but let's get stuck into the problem instead of marching around and ranting and raving on Women's Day. So I put out a tweet where I said let's... Uh, say so all the tax that the government collects from guys with over $3 million in their super fund, that that be specifically distributed equally amongst all women every year into their super... And all women who've got less than 500000 in their super all get the same amount as you get put into their super from what's taken from these wealthy blokes at the top. And that's a very pragmatic way to start to... Uh, to close uh, uh, that gap. But all sorts of people saying you couldn't do it when, when you could. One way or another, if just giving women a pay rise right now or better super doesn't get them out of the years of neglect in super, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some special... And this is the way, let's divert the tax from these rich guys to women with under 500000 super. I'm going to push that for a while too.
0: I think that's a good idea, yeah, because we, we've talked about before, yeah, that... The super gap is the result of, like, years of compounding. It's not just a one-off thing.
1: Ah, so, yeah. Yeah,
0: it requires that sort well, of redress.
1: Do, do some pragmatic things. Now, coming to bad guys, I've got to have a go at mate Sunak again. He's come to a deal about Northern Ireland with uh, the lady who's the head of the European Commission, and by the way, I think she's quite a competent leader, far more competent than Sunak, but... They're trying to get a deal where Northern Ireland gets special treatment because Northern Ireland's part of the UK, which is Brexit, and Southern Ireland is in Europe. Now, the simplest way to fix it is for Sunak to call a conference and, and, and say, I want a referendum. Can we have in both can we have one island? Can the North join the South where it should have been for the last hundred on years? And then you don't have any worry. The North is in is in Europe, uh, to its benefit. Instead of all this business of special deals, why the hell doesn't he work to unite Ireland and fix a long-standing nonsense that's torn that country apart?
0: Makes sense. And I mean, it's it's something that's been, you know, we, the the troubles and whatnot in the in the century just gone and. IRA and the the conflicts in between northern and southern ireland and the protestants and the catholics horrible horrible bloodshed horrible horrible loss of life um but the the with brexit the the two Ireland's thing looks more and more silly as you point out because you've got one in one uh diplomatic um group the eu and another in the uk and now Whilst the UK was in the EU, that didn't mean anything. But now it's suddenly for trade and commerce does mean a lot of things. And the path of least resistance would just be, like you say, to to see if at least hold a referendum. They held the Scottish independence referendum a couple of years ago. Um, there'd be no reason not to at least hold a referendum. And if the answer is no, the answer is no. But it might be yes, right?
1: Can't have yeah. to try yeah, sorry, well, well, James, I agree. Well,
0: what's uh, Who's what, your bad guy of the week? Um, my bad guy of the week is the Sydney Morning Herald. They had a big front page this week talking about how we might be going to war with China within three years and we need to be ready for it, which is just such blatant warmongering and fear mongering. Uh, they talked to five experts to produce that story, all of whom are linked to U.S. arms and weapons manufacturers. I wonder what interest people linked to U.S. arms and weapons manufacturers have in people being scared of war. Hmm. Jeez, can't can't think of one. <laughs> um, okay. Now, to, to build on this further, and sorry to interrupt, it's also right before the budget, and someone very clever who I know pointed out to me that every it seems like every time before the budget, Um, You know, the the military industrial complex ramps up their fear campaigns so people get scared and they can push for more defence funding uh, and weapons funding and funding for toys that men can use to kill other men, which are evil. Uh, And I think that's probably right. They're just sort of, again, throwing China under the bus as a way to secure more defence funding and fatter pay packets for themselves. But it's just so tiring and so evil and bad.
1: Well, now, James, I've got to chastise you, my boy. I don't read the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age, all those Channel 9 newspapers. I don't read Rupert Murdoch's newspapers. I think that both are not even fit to put your fish and chips in. And so I've got to chastise you for reading this paper in the first place. <laughs> and you've got to learn to get your news from some reliable source. Now, there's not many reliable sources in Australia. The Guardian, you know, is uh, is one. Uh, mm-hmm. But if if I want uh, some conservative news, I subscribe to the Spectator uh, because it, it's the most conservative thing in the world, and I get a good laugh out of the Spectator. But at least they don't talk silly nonsense. Uh, they get stuck into you know in a reasonably educated way, and I have a good laugh about how they describe various politicians, whatever. But, look, you know, I, I just think the mainstream media in Australia is not worth a crumpet. And uh, you and I, James, when you become a wealthy young bloke, I'll stick around. We might start a decent newspaper that will handle these things well, but that's a thing we can look forward to, isn't it?
0: I like the way you think, Edward. I like the way you think, and I'll try to take <laughs> your wisdom to heart.
1: <laughs> well, now, James, we've had a good week and we, we look forward to another one and... and uh, And interesting times, the New South Wales election is revving up. So Mm -hmm. by next next Saturday, you and I have got to give an expert review on what's going to happen in New South Wales the following Saturday. And I've been watching with great interest from up here in Queensland. But look forward to talking to you next week. And thanks for the chat today, James.
0: Yep, as always. Thanks, Ev. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have Have a great time. Ciao for now. Bye.